It can't just be me who's noticed that trolling of brands on social media has become more frequent and more vitriolic. But what causes it? Honestly, sometimes people are just a bit bored. They might sort of see this breaking on Facebook and think, oh, God, that's terrible. I think I'll send a tweet to sort of show my displeasure. You get fired up by other people saying just how bad that thing is. And so everyone gets more and more angry. But it all becomes a a massive issue for a brand. And what happens if you lose control of the trolls? It can almost then turn into this naming and shaming, which which then can cause another backlash when you then have other people getting angry at the original angry mob for being so angry in the first place. We've all seen it happen where an on-the-face-of-it minor complaint turns into a major issue. But what's it like when you have to deal with such a crisis? It can be quite intimidating. And I think until you've actually been through that yourself and and helped a brand out during a crisis, you don't really know how terrible it is. And and it's it's very emotional. And to have just angry people shouting at you is, is not a nice thing at all. In this week's episode of Digital Download, I'm talking to Tamara Littleton, CEO of the social element and crisis simulation platform Polpio. We're discussing the rise of brand trolling and how companies can best deal with and prepare for a social media crisis. This is Digital Download, a podcast that explores the latest thinking in digital communications, PR and social media. Here's your host, Paul Sutton. Thanks for joining me today, Tamara. Real pleasure talking to you. We're going to cover something that I think a lot of brands and companies out there are are pretty scared of. And I know that some companies that I've worked with are still very reticent about getting too involved in social media because of this. The subject being trolling and online harassment and the way that groups of people specifically, but sometimes individuals go after a brand or a company because of something they've said or done. Before we start, I I just wanted to talk to you about your history with this trolling and harassment, because I know from a TED talk that you did last year, you had some personal experience of this going back some time. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I'd I'd be very happy to talk about that. So I did this TEDx talk in Marrakesh. I was really happy to do that last October. And what I did was I took the audience through a personal journey of being uh, harassed online. And it was right at the beginning stage of when I started my company. So at the time it was called eModeration. It's now called uh, The Social Element. And it was an interesting situation to be put in because essentially I was looking after a forum that was for IT professionals. And they asked me to kind of clean up the forum because it had got really, really out of control. It was it was nasty. And there was a bit of a backlash. So the people didn't like me trying to tame the trolls, I suppose. And what happened was that they started getting really abusive and very personal and actually they started doxing me, which I don't know if people are familiar with that term, but it's essentially when people start sharing your personal details and photos of you and even your home address and then try and encourage people to um, attack you and, and sort of send emails. And, uh, and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a really nasty, I mean, I'm not going to say it was kind of up there with the sort of level of harassment that, uh, you know, celebrities get and that sort of thing, but Honestly, it, it was pretty nasty and it was quite an, a nightening experience to be on the end of it. But uh, something that I uh, 
and got through and it in, spurred me on in many ways to actually uh, carrying on looking after brands and making sure that they you know keep their brand nice and, and healthy and, and get rid of the trolls essentially. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the, the doxing thing because it's not a term that I had actually heard of until I, I watched your talk. But essentially doxing, trolling, being extremely offensive harassment online is all essentially illegal now. It's it's getting worse and worse. I mean, there are definitely areas that are not legal. And I think, you know, the law does come into force if people actually, you know, threaten physical harm, for example. Yeah. But that, that doxing thing, it's it's got bigger in the in the gaming industry but it starts sort of spreading into other areas and there's one particular sort of area where people will send I mean, it's actually called swatting where people will send a SWAT team over to your house so they will ring the police I mean it's happening a lot in America hence the name the SWAT team but they'll actually call the police and say that there's um, you know an armed person inside the house so that the police turn up at your door which is you know, done as I think people thought that that was absolutely hilarious to, uh, to sort of see people's reaction while they're doing online gaming and have people come around and knock on the door. But it actually has led to a death in America. So I think it's really getting out of control, if I'm absolutely honest. Yeah, it seems to be something that you see more and more of, whether that's just because it's more in the public eye and the media pick up on things. But it does seem to be, like you say, getting out of hand a bit. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I, you know, I talk about this in my talk. Uh, the, the TEDx talk is it's all about the four different adversaries that you meet, essentially. They're sort of trolls, the angry mob, the influencers, and also activists. And one of the things, because of course, when you're doing a TED talk, you only have sort of about 18 minutes maximum. And I think I spoke for 15. You have to make sure you're really getting your point down to that you know, amount of time. But there's so much more that can be said, because you know I talked about trolls, about how you know don't feed the trolls and, and that's still the case that you shouldn't really be giving people airtime and, and brands you know in many ways can take more control than individuals because they do have the power to check their own Facebook pages for example and, and just chuck trolls off but I've been working in digital since 1995 and I think things definitely have changed and you know in the early pioneering days um, I was working in online publishing I also worked at the BBC in the very early days of online communities back in 1999 where people would talk on forums and and internet relay chat there was a lot of sort of communication now because it's real life as well it's not just you know uh, it's not online people do behave badly that's just the nature of society you, you know you know haters gonna hate all of that kind of fun stuff um but i think over time it's perhaps got more aggressive you know the, the culture is definitely attacking people with uh, threats of rape and and actually to, to individuals and just sort of throwing out these comments as if it's nothing it's it's becoming i think that aggressive behavior online has perhaps become more normalized and that's something that is difficult to deal with and i personally don't think it's necessarily like just a digital problem or an online problem i think it's something that Perhaps we need to um, think about ourselves, about how do we deal with that? How how are we letting that, as a society, become normalised? Okay, well, I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, you mentioned four types of troll there. How do you kind of categorise different types of troll and how they how they manifest themselves? 
Yes, of course. So I, I break it down as four types of the four types of people that you will meet online and how to deal with them. Now, trolls we've spoken about. The next one is the angry mob, which I find fascinating and this is perhaps the, the type of people that we see more when we're looking after brands. Yes. The, the angry mob, to be honest, Paul, it, it, it's, it's you and me. <laughs> it's, it's anyone. Um, it's essentially when we get frustrated with something online. And it's usually triggered by something that a brand has done. Yep. So I, I went into great detail about the uh, um, American Airlines, for example, where there was a man who was who was taken off the the plane because of an overbooking situation that actually then went viral because people were attacking american airlines very very upset with what was happening and of course there were videos going viral of him being dragged off the plane there was blood on his face it was a a really horrific situation so you can imagine that people were getting upset now the, the term it, it's it is a kind of a friendly term really but it it is the sense of the public turn into this angry mob because they are sending things out on Facebook they are retweeting they're getting more and more upset and it can happen in a day and it can all be over it can actually last uh, several weeks depending on on what the brand has done what the situation is and really this is this is something where we work with brands, whether it's via crisis preparation or actually managing their, their social media on a daily basis. But a lot of it is how you need to respond very quickly. You need to calm people down. And that often means giving them the information that they need. There's nothing worse to inflame an angry mob than silence uh, yeah. when they're really, really upset. So yeah. you need to you need to be listening to what people are saying. You need to be responding. You need to respond fast. And then it comes down to the tone of voice. And for some brands, that's about using empathy or having the, the, you know, saying the right thing at the right time. Sometimes it's just about saying sorry. And I know this is a really difficult situation in, uh, you know, in the PR industry. Uh, that's that whole debate about should you say sorry or not say sorry. And, and there are times where it is absolutely the right thing to do to calm things down and to, um, to protect the reputation of the brand. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing about empathy and saying sorry is certainly on my radar whenever I'm talking to a brand about this, because a point was made in, in an earlier episode of this podcast that saying sorry seems to be a very unfashionable thing to do. People just don't like saying sorry anymore for whatever reason. And just saying sorry for something tends to stop this mob from taking over. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's, you know, we have this thing about you treat the t consumers in a, in a very human way. If someone has done something wrong, sometimes that's really what you need to hear. You need to hear sort of uh, some empathy. You need to hear an, an apology. And then you can move on because what happens more and more is you get these waves of people in, in the angry mob, as we call it, who want to make their point. They want to sort of say, this is really bad. This is annoying. But it can go to a whole new level where people start baying for blood and wanting people's job. Uh, you know, they want to demand that someone has been sacked because they've made such a terrible mistake. And and there are times where the brand needs to kind of take control of that that narrative, really, because it, it's just people getting worked up. Whereas actually, if you can just say we we messed up, we're so sorry, this won't happen again, or we're looking into it. Um, you know, I do realise. Uh, that legally it's a big issue but it can be very very important that if if a brand has messed up it's just a very quick way of dealing with things and 
making sure that it doesn't get worse. Yeah, and brands seem to be apologising for the wrong things a lot of the time. The United Airlines example is spot on for this, where they didn't apologise for mishandling the gentleman in question. They apologised for the situation with overbooking. Yes. People aren't stupid, are they? People can see through an insincere apology in a matter of seconds. And so it's not just about saying sorry. It's about apologising for the right thing as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think we see this all the time that it, it seems to be that the public have all become specialists in PR and they will spot an insincere apology uh, a mile off. But also, yes, apolo- as you say, apologising for the wrong thing, not really tackling the problem of a person who was hurt, but actually apologising for the, the overbooking situation. But also the wrong tone of voice is used I think we see this a lot with our clients and and with with other people that if they are too corporate, that can actually have an effect on on the crowd as well, that they they feel that that's insincere or it's just, you know, people paying uh, lip service and and it's not a real apology. And then honestly, that can then make things actually worse. So getting that tone of voice is absolutely crucial. What do you think motivates people when they get in this kind of mob culture frame of mind? It's such an interesting one. I mean, I remember reading the um, the, the John Ronson book on, uh, I hope I've got the title right, it's, it's uh, So You've Been Shamed on Social Media. Absolutely fascinating. It's, if you haven't read it, I really thoroughly recommend that, that you read it. It brings into effect, you know, all the different motivations. I mean, there's just the very, the, the motivation that we can all understand, which is, that's a really bad thing. You know, someone has done a bad thing. I am cross. Yeah. I'm going to vent my disapproval and and sort of and then you sort of you get fired up by other people saying just how bad that thing is. And so everyone gets more and more angry. But sometimes I think it is it does go a little bit further with people wanting someone to blame. And it can almost then turn into this naming and shaming, which which then can cause another backlash when you then have other people getting angry at the original angry mob for being so angry in the first place. It's, <laughs> yes. it's, <laughs> it's quite an interesting uh, sort of dynamic that happens. And sometimes, you know, honestly, sometimes people are just a bit bored. Um, they might sort of see this this breaking on Facebook and think, oh, God, that's terrible. I think I'll... I'll sort of send a tweet to sort of show my displeasure, and and that, it, but it all all becomes a, a massive issue for a brand if they have the equivalent of an angry mob, you know, at their doors waving their pitch cor- pitchforks. It it can be quite intimidating, and I think until you've actually been through that yourself and and helped a brand out during a crisis, um, you don't really know how terrible it is and and it's it's very emotional and to have just angry people shouting at you is is not a nice thing at all so you have to have a thick skin you have to be able to sort of deal with it but i think that's where having guidelines having the tone of voice guidelines in place is really important so that people know how to act and obviously just rehearsing is always a a really good thing but it's it's a very emotional thing to go through yeah absolutely i've heard people when I dealt with these things, I've had people say to me that, oh, it's only only the crowd getting behind something and they'll move on to the next thing the next day. In your experience of dealing with a lot of crises, is that the case or does the crowd hang on for a lot longer than actually you think it's going to? Yes, there are often times where we see it, it blows up and it, it is over in, in a day if handled really well. So again, what I was saying about 
reacting quickly. There were times where things would be left perhaps for 24 hours. And then, of course, you've got an even worse situation where people are just almost spreading rumours because they're not hearing directly from the brand. So when a brand has a dialogue with the the angry mob, and, and that includes actually talking to individuals as well, you know, getting back to them using direct messaging or, or actually just publicly, that will speed things up in terms of the crisis being over. I think, do you know what's really interesting is that there are a lot of times where people think it's a lot worse than it is, because what I was saying about it being very emotional, if you're dealing with hundreds of people on Twitter shouting at you, talking about your brand, really uh, bringing it down, it can be quite tempting to think that this is an absolute disaster. You are in a code red situation and you need to get a press release out. You need to respond to everybody. And there are times where social listening is really, really important. We've done this with clients and we've had to sort of say, actually, do you know what? In terms of what people are normally saying about your brand, yes, this is a little bit worse than normal, but it's not actually too bad. And you have to bring that that context in to really reassure people not to overreact and not to panic because you can end up making, you know, creating a bit of a firestorm and making it worse. So I think it's really important to have several people working on the account and just having that distance to sort of almost take your breath, look at the data and think, okay, just how bad is this? Yes, it's a particularly emotional topic that they're all upset about, but in the grand scheme of things, what is the noise? What is the real crisis situation? And then it might be that you can just deal with individuals and calm it down. Whereas if you then go on record, start pushing out press releases about how apologetic you are, and everyone is just like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? I had no idea that this was a situation. So it, it's really important to, to use that data. Okay. You talked about trolls and the angry mob there. What are the other two categories you talk about? The third category is uh, the activists. So these are people like uh, Greenpeace or like any sort of campaign really it's it's usually a case of a very well organized group who are targeting a particular brand for something that they've done now i'm not for a minute saying that these are trolls or that this is a bad thing because there's a reason why i love social media so so much and a lot of it is to do with the power of the individual and how these um, amazing campaigns can kind of bubble up you know the the Me Too campaign and the Time's Up campaign is a great example of social media at its best in, in, in my mind. However, I think when a brand is kind of in the targets of an activist group, it, it is obviously a difficult situation. Now, one answer is try not to get into the targets of an activist group <laughs> by uh, making sure that, you know, that the brand is, is doing everything uh, right because yeah. it, these days everything is, is so transparent and, and everything is, is out there. So, But of course, sometimes that's just what happens. And I think what's really interesting and what's changed over the years is that uh, activist groups have so many different tools at their disposal and they have a huge army of committed followers. It's very hard for a brand, once they are in the sights of an activist group, to do anything about it because they can do uh, you know, amazing uh, campaigns that are you know, advertising quality campaigns. They can do stunts, they can do sort of real life stunts combined with social media, all of the social media ability to kind of grab a group of uh, people and, and put them, you know, behind one single cause is absolutely amazing and it's very, very strong. So in the talk, I, I go into a bit of detail about how 
it's important not to have a dialogue with the uh, the activist groups in a in a public forum just because it's not it's not really going to lead to anything productive and it's much better to have a, an offline dialogue with that group to try and change things and that is the best way if if you actually just sort of try and defend yourself as a brand online it's it's just not going to work it's it's kind of a little bit too late by then so that that early dialogue and trying to sort of change things and you know if there's something has happened in the past that needs to be changed obviously making those changes and then working with that group so that they know that those changes have happened is, is the best way to uh, to move forward. Okay. The last group is the influencers. And this group is, they can really make or break uh, a crisis situation because the influencers might be people like journalists, uh, celebrities, ambassadors for a brand, for example. And I think in the middle of a, a situation, that's when rumours are, are going around. So I think journalists can help state the facts, for example. So I think it's really important to have these the dialogue with the influencers, having a dialogue with the uh, journalists, celebrities, I'm not saying it would always be a case of, of ambassadors, but just any celebrity can get on the bandwagon. Uh, you know, they can become part of the angry mob and, and my God, you've got a situation on your hands then. Yeah. Uh, so again, having that dialogue, using social listening, using the right tone of voice, making sure you're very present and getting back to people. But it's it's changed so much. I mean, the the influencers are now the YouTubers yeah. and uh, people with huge followings that may have gone under the radar of brands, but they have massive influence. And I think it's it's really interesting because obviously journalists have different code of conduct and, and ethics that they work to. Not everyone who is an influencer necessarily works to the same uh, standards that journalists do, for example. So we're we're in an interesting time at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think the level of control that brands have has gone down? Or conversely, do you actually think that brands are more aware now that they do have control over their, at least over their own channels? What's your view on that? Yeah, I think over the years, brands have definitely realised that they, they can have more control. And, and I remember actually working with uh, some of my early clients, they were very worried about removing any comments from Facebook, for example. Yes. Uh, they didn't want to be seen as stopping uh, free speech or somehow, uh, you know, ruining social media by by removing, um, you know, nasty comments, for example. But actually, that's that's changed a lot where people do realize that, you know, why would you taint your brand with just, uh, you know, vile comments, for example. So yeah, yeah. In, in, in many ways, the extreme behavior is much easier to deal with. You just remove it, you can block them, uh, and obviously people can come back and, and keep posting. But it's actually more straightforward to deal with the very troublesome people. There is more control in terms of getting involved. So it's perhaps switched from being very broadcast with advertising and then sort of sitting back and waiting for the, the response. I think more of the savvy brands are really focusing on uh, engaging with their consumers just as an ongoing practice so that you have customer service, marketing and PR are just so closely linked. They're, they're not working in silos, which, um, you know, even just three years ago, that was definitely the case uh, where, you know, the marketing team and the PR team were managing social media sometimes they had different channels that they were managing and they weren't necessarily talking to each other so i think a lot has changed internally as well for brands with the way that things are managed a much more global approach and um 
a much more joined up approach which of course means that you just by its very nature you do actually have more control in what is going on 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 the internet in terms of listening to the conversation reacting to the conversation sometimes apologizing sometimes uh you know promoting positive behavior so a, a lot has changed what would you say to those people who are still a bit nervous? What's the key to preparing for this, just to summarise? I think uh, that that's a really good question. I would say that for a brand, the tone of voice and having a clear identity and sense of, of values, I think, is, is really important. So that people who are posting on social media on the brand's behalf are all really connected to the brand they understand the tone of voice they get it right and they they know how to sort of connect with the audience and and you know what campaigns to put out getting just that really clear brand identity and tone of voice so i think there's a lot of documentation that uh, savvy brands have in place and it's always worth maybe checking them on a yearly basis to make sure that they are still relevant there's also the sense of probably just talk, talking more about documentation. We work a lot around having escalation workflows. I know it sounds quite dull, but it's vital. You know, you have to know, you know this, a crisis will always happen either Saturday afternoon or the middle <laughs> of the night where people are not necessarily yeah. at work or, you know, have their, and then you're sort of struggling because you have your mobile phone, you need to react to things. So it's very, very important to have documentation that has telephone numbers the the key people that you need to phone and and how to kind of get the crisis team put together in a in a hurry so a lot of it is around that preparation it's not going to be no surprise that i'm going to recommend uh, simulations and rehearsals we find that for our clients they find this so important because it's a bit like military training there's the sense of testing your processes but actually going through a simulated crisis as if it was real is the best way to test everything is in place test your communication style can you actually sort of get through the crisis effectively but also testing the team because you don't know until you're in that situation whether someone's going to freeze whether one person in the crisis team is actually more dominant but actually is lacking uh, skills so all sorts of things come out and i think when people have actually gone through that situation they are battle ready so when it actually happens it's okay they are calm they know what to do. They're not going to panic. So I think that preparation, documentation, getting that tone of voice right. And then when you actually find yourself in a crisis, it's all about having a team to back you up. I think long gone are the days where you can just rely on one social media manager to sort of solve solve everything because that's just not fair on that person. It's tiring. It's emotional. You need a team to react and a lot of it is much more strategic decisions. You know, the, the law, the, the legal team, the comms team, the social media team, uh, the HR team, that there are so many people, um, you know, more and more. I, I actually did a talk on how CFOs need to be involved because you get it wrong and the share price is affected. So it's it's a board level issue now. So I think all of that preparation and then having the right people in in the team ready to go through it. Yeah, great. I mean, you know what I think of your simulations. I think they're fantastic. And having had the chance to run some and sit within them as well, I 
absolutely recommend them to everyone. That's been really, really useful. Thank you for your experience on that. Um, where can people find you on the web if they want to talk to you more about this? Uh, Twitter is at T Littleton. You can find me, uh, search for Tamara Littleton on LinkedIn. Those are probably the easiest ways to get through to me uh, personally. And of course, we have our company website. So there's the social elements.agency and also polpio.com. Fantastic. Thank you again. It's been really, really useful. I hope people have got a lot of value for that. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Paul. If you've enjoyed today's show, you should check out Digital Download Live, the interactive digital marketing conference for PR, comms and digital media professionals. It's happening on the 26th of April in London, and we'll be covering many of the topics addressed in this podcast, including developments in influence marketing, artificial intelligence, Facebook marketing, messaging, and voice recognition. You can find more information and book tickets at digitaldownload.training. And you can contact me on Twitter, where I'm at the Paul Sutton, or by email at paul at paulsutton.co. Thanks for listening.